Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Phantasm II from 1988, written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Now, originally Coscarelli wasn't planning on making a sequel to the first Phantasm. He felt like it was narratively complete, with nowhere to really go from the it's-only-a-dream-or-is-it ending. And also, he didn't want to be seen exclusively as a horror director. Again, it's worth remembering that Phantasm was his third theatrical feature, after a drama and a comedy. It's also worth mentioning again that my primary source for most of this background information is the excellent Phantasm Exhumed by Dustin McNeil. Since he wasn't planning on making a sequel, the original plan, which would have featured Michael and Jody's cousin coming to Morningside to find out what happened to them, never made it past the script stage. And it was not scripted by Coscarelli, it was scripted by his mother, who uh, worked with him on the first Phantasm along with his father. But Coscarelli's follow-up to Phantasm, a sword and sorcery film called The Beastmaster, was a troubled production and a box office failure, although it has become a fondly remembered cult film thanks to its repeated showings on HBO during the 80s, prompting screenwriter C. Robert Cargill's joke that HBO stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on. As in 1979, Coscarelli needed another success, and it just so happened that Universal needed a big horror franchise. This was the 1980s, after all, and studios like Paramount and New Line were making money hand over fist off of the Freddy and Jason movies. Having your own horror franchise was like having money in the bank, or at least that was how it seemed, and Universal was eager to snap up a property with a proven success record. Incidentally, you can still see this line of reasoning at the studio today. Dark Universe, anyone? Inspired by Salem's Lot, Coscarelli decided to make the sequel into a road movie, with Reggie and Mike hunting the tall man and his minions across the Pacific Northwest. Universal handed him a $3 million budget, the largest of any installment in the franchise, but unfortunately that money came with strings attached. Used to working on his own terms with self-financed pictures, Coscarelli found it frustrating to deal with the big studio, especially their insistence that Mike needed to be recast with a working actor, as Michael Baldwin had been out of the industry for a few years when Phantasm II began production. They had a similar condition for Reggie Bannister, but Coscarelli insisted that at least one of the original cast had to return to maintain continuity, and Mike's recasting could be covered up in the transition from childhood to adulthood. And speaking of that cast, we can start with James LeGrosse as Mike and Reggie Bannister as Reggie. As we discussed in the previous Phantasm episode, Bannister is a working actor who parlayed his reputation from this franchise into appearances in horror movies like Spring Break Massacre, Sigma Die, and Necronaut. I'll probably be able to sprinkle in titles like this throughout the series' run without repeating. While Legros, the controversial choice of the studio, is a Minnesota native and regular day player on television shows from Knight Rider all the way up through Castle Rock and Fear the Walking Dead. As always, we love our day players on Half Price Horror. If you can make a living in acting for almost 40 years solely on the strength of your auditions and your work ethic, you are sure as hell doing something right. 
Legrosse also spent a lot of the 80s dueling with a young Brad Pitt for roles. They both share a very sort of pouty, sulky good looks to them. Uh, and in fact, he just beat Pitt out for this one. Uh, he was not a popular choice at the time among the fan base, but people have come to appreciate his performance under somewhat awkward and difficult conditions. Also returning is the face of the franchise, Angus Scrim, as the villainous tall man. Scrim was, of course, best known for this series, much like Robert England will always be identified with Freddy Krueger, but he's been in dozens of other horror movies, including Satan Hates You, I Sell the Dead, and John Dies at the End, another Coscarelli production. Even after his death in 2016, at the age of 89, he had one last movie come out that he filmed before his death, Dances with Werewolves, a true legend of the genre. And after a first film that was almost entirely devoid of female characters, Coscarelli makes an awkward attempt at course correction here by giving us love interests for both of the male protagonists, Paula Irvine's Liz and Samantha Phillips's Alchemy. Apparently this was a condition of the studio, and while I'm not a big fan of the Sid Fields everybody has to have a love interest uh, notion, it at least got some female characters into the story. We will, of course, discuss these two more as the film goes on, but Irvine is probably best known, apart from this film, for her role as Lily Blake on 158 episodes of Santa Barbara, and Samantha Phillips wound up going on to do a lot of work in erotic films, although, as always, there's a degree of overlap between erotica and horror when you get to films like Cheerleader Massacre. Both have gone on to a career in communications, with Phillips in particular hosting several radio shows over the years. And rounding out the major cast is Kenneth Teeger as the doomed Father Myers. Teeger is one of those great famous faces, instantly recognizable in roles all over film and television. If you've seen The Avengers, he's the German man who stands up to Loki in the big scene in Stuttgart, the one who says, There are always men like you. But he's been around since the 1970s, and every time you see him you say, Oh, hey, it's that guy! Uh, recently, he's been Himmler in The Man in the High Castle. After the opening title card begins the movie, which shows off the bigger budget with a bit of animation as the letters are slowly lit up from behind, we jump directly to Liz, who's just waking up from a dream that prompts her to race to the oven to make sure it's turned off. This is a nice little touch that doesn't really pay off until your second watch. She's clearly thinking of the twin explosions of Mike and Reggie's houses. She goes to her dream journals, which are filled with descriptions and drawings of Mike, and through the memories of her dreams, we're filled in on what's been going on with him since the original Phantasm, which is set, as well as made, eight years before this movie. We get a fuller picture here of what happened at the end of Phantasm. In this version, we see the tall man pulling up outside Mike's house in his hearse, before cutting to the infamous ending where he appears in Mike's room to shout, Boy! before hands pull Mike through the mirror of his closet door. And more importantly, we see what happens next. Reggie hears the shattering of glass from downstairs and goes running up to see an unconscious Mike being dragged out of the closet face down, so that he could be played by a body double. Uh, Lori Laughlin of Full House and College Admission Scandals fame, believe it or not. Reggie races back down the stairs to grab a gun, but when he opens a cupboard to get ammunition, one of the tall man's dwarf minions leaps out at him. And this, I'll be honest, is always a pet peeve of mine in horror movies, because I really have to ask, how did this guy get into the cupboard? Did he say to himself, hmm, I'll just climb in here on the off chance that someone opens this door? 
Did he go into the cupboard for something himself and get stuck? What what would have happened if Reggie had not gone to the cupboard? Would he have just sat there all evening, sort of waiting for something to happen, twiddling his thumbs? Given that there's a direct line of sight between where Reggie was sitting and this cupboard, how did he get in there unseen? Did he sprint in during the 30 seconds it took Reggie to run up and down the stairs and vault his own body height off the floor to jump inside? I know, Phantasm is an odd series with a strange relationship to consensus reality, but moments like this always break immersion for me because they're so patently drawing attention to the artificiality of the scare. I feel like as a writer you should always ask yourself whether the film would make sense if you shot it from the monster's perspective. Reggie struggles with the Lurker, which is still not named as such in this movie, and we get a good look at their face for the first time in the series. It's old and wrinkled with a snarling mouth and eyes that look like they have very slight cataracts. It tries to bite him, but he throws it off and beats it to death with the butt of his gun. Honestly, quite violently, I'd be surprised if it still fired after that kind of abuse. We don't see him try, so it's not relevant, but I he really goes at it. <laughs> He goes into the kitchen drawer, still rummaging for ammo and weapons, but when he turns back around, a half-dozen dwarves have crept into the room behind him. One of them is standing on the kitchen island, so hey, maybe they can jump twice their own body height. Reggie turns on all the stove burners and snuffs the pilot lights, then sprints to the laundry room and crawls up the chute. These days, they don't make them wide enough for people to fit into for safety reasons, but it's probably an older house. He rescues Mike from a lurker, and the two of them jump out the second-story window just before the gas reaches the fireplace and the house explodes in one of Coscarelli's trademark over-the-top explosions. Supposedly, the fire marshal was a fan of the original and allowed them to pack in a little more boom than was, strictly speaking, necessary or safe. But as we see, the tall man was already outside when the blast happened. As Liz pages through her dream journal, we see Mike grow from a 13-year-old boy to a young man of 21, and she muses that she can feel the tall man closing in on her. Some of her dreams are prophetic, and she knows her grandfather will die soon, which will bring her into conflict with the Sinister Undertaker. And because her role in this movie is primarily that of damsel in distress and love interest, she finishes her monologue with a plea for Mike to come and save her. Which then leads to Mike waking up from his dream of Liz's dream, implying that the two of them have visions that are nested and intertwined with one another. This puts a new spin on everything we saw in the first film, because if Mike is psychic like Liz, then the dreams he saw could have been prophecies, visions, or possibly some version of events that only those with unusual mental talents can experience. Certainly, it seems like nobody else remembers things the way he does. He's been institutionalized for the last seven years. His stories of alien undertakers from other dimensions who squish corpses down into dwarves before reanimating them as slaves not exactly going over well with the people who know him. Even Reggie, who appears to have been present for some of it, doesn't believe it. Realizing that Liz needs him, Mike walks in and tells his psychiatrist, played by J. Patrick McNamara, that he's had a breakthrough, he understands that he was experienced in delusions, but he's just fine now and he would like to be let out. Without asking a single follow-up question, his doctor releases him. Obviously, this is sketched in for purposes of expediency, because this film has a lot of ground to cover in its 96-minute runtime. But it's still kind of amusing to watch LeGrosse parrot his therapy-jargon version of events and get an instant ticket out of the institution. 
Morningside Psychiatric Hospital, by the way, which in conjunction with the cemetery suggests that Morningside is the name of the town, or, if you want to take it that way, that there's some connection between the tall man and the hospital as well. Mike heads to the graveyard literally as soon as the sun goes down and digs up some graves to prove that his memories are true. It's really amazing. It's like the very next scene from him saying, nope, I'm better now. Reggie goes looking for him, but he's feeling a little bit out of his depth. The story is so unbelievable, specifically contradicting Reggie's own memories of events, that even finding out that there are a whole bunch of empty coffins under the ground doesn't convince him. He offers to bring Mike back for dinner with his wife and daughter so that they can talk it over further. But as they're driving back, Mike experiences a psychic vision of the tall man turning Reggie's trick on itself by opening all the burners on the banister stove. He urges Reggie to drive faster, warning him of the danger, but it's too late. This house goes up as well, in an explosion that looks suspiciously familiar. Obviously, it's the same house, filmed from a different angle. I admire their attempt to make the most of the budget, but when they're seen so close together like this, it's really hard not to notice the similarities. Not just in the house, but in the specific shape of the explosion and the way it goes off. Reggie races towards the flames in an effort to save his family, but it's too late and Mike tackles him to the ground. This is obviously a classic case of fridging, a common trope in male-oriented action stories, where the female characters primarily serve as appendages to men whose real purpose is to evoke an emotional reaction by dying and hence motivating them to revenge. It's something that nowadays is looked very much on as cliched and sexist, but in 1988, this was before we started having these conversations in a real sense, uh, certainly well before the essay Women in Refrigerators by Gail Simone that gave the trope its name. At the funeral, Reggie finally accepts that Mike is experiencing true visions, even if he himself can't really understand it all. It's an important moment for the franchise, so it's kind of a shame that there's a weirdly distracting intersection between the way the scene is blocked and the way the characters are dressed that makes it appear as though Reggie might have been somehow permanently blinded by the explosion. He's wearing big, dark sunglasses, and admittedly so is Mike, but Reggie also doesn't look at Mike when he's talking to him, he just keeps staring straight ahead, and it really looks like he's trying to play Reggie as someone who's lost his eyesight. Anyway, it's not important, but I guarantee you, you won't be able to not notice it when you watch. The two of them hit the road a la Ben and Mark in Salem's Lot, taking Jody's Hemi Cuda from the first movie on an extended road trip to find the tall man. Reggie narrates this section of the film, which begins with them breaking into a hardware store and improvising weapons from the equipment there in what feels very much like a nod to the then-recently-released Evil Dead 2. Uh, I'll say it as many times as I need to, the Evil Dead movies are some of the most influential films on modern cinema. Not just horror cinema, cinema as a whole. They're the velvet underground of movies. Everyone who saw them got a camera and wanted to make their own movie. The duo make a flamethrower and strap two sawed-off shotguns together side by side in what's become one of the signature weapons of the franchise. According to Wayne Beauchamp, who designed the iconic prop, the quad shotgun did work, but was never fired with live ammunition because the four barrels weren't held together securely enough to risk it. They leave some money in the register and head out. 
We learn from the ensuing montage that what happened in Mike and Reggie's hometown is far from the natural course of events where the tall man sets up shop. Usually, he and his minions scour the town clean of human life, leaving behind abandoned houses and shops and cars. This is a huge and audacious shift in the narrative, portrayed economically with only a handful of sets and a few memorable vivid images. The graveyard full of empty graves is particularly shocking. In just a few minutes of screen time and without personally appearing, the tall man goes from Mike's personal boogeyman to an apocalyptic threat to the human race. It's a big swing, and I think one of the reasons fans of this series admire it so much is that it's genuinely unafraid to take this kind of direction despite its limits on time and money. The two of them investigate the mortuary in the town they've discovered, looking for evidence that will lead them to the tall man's next destination, and wary of any traps he might left behind. And after a few moments, it finally settles in that the montages and dreams and time skips have finally ended, and we're experiencing the film as a relatively linear narrative for the first time. That's about 20 minutes in, which is a lot by itself, but it's such a firehose of information that it feels more like 40 in some ways. You can understand how it might have been a little bit challenging for audiences in 1988, not to foreshadow the film's reception or anything. Down a long hallway whose production design again betrays the influence of Suspiria, I literally got a trivia question wrong the other day because I conflated the two films, Mike finds an embalming room with a naked woman on the slab. This is our first look at alchemy, and although she proves to be another one of Mike's visions, it's a clear and ominous portent of the film's ending that he finds her within the tall man's power right from the start. At least, we assume it's his vision. It's never made clear exactly who alchemy really is, or when and where she becomes one of the tall man's minions, or if in fact she's another incarnation of him, like the Lady in Lavender from the first movie. The ambiguity makes her more interesting, though, and it's a shame she doesn't return to the franchise. Although, honestly, when it comes to female characters getting short shrift from a series that focuses pretty heavily on men and machismo, that's a deep rabbit hole for the Phantasm movies that we're probably going to spend quite a while diving into. Reggie, meanwhile, finds what appears to be a lurker in the basement under a sheet, but when they pull off the sheet, they find Liz with her mouth taped shut. It's not the real Liz, though. Beneath the rest of the sheet is a pustulating abscess on her back that erupts into a giant worm with the tall man's face, daring them to come east and face him for real. It's very reminiscent of the worm, a smaller but very reminiscent of the worm in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, and it's probably one of the biggest shocks in the whole movie. Uh, it's vividly realized by FX legends Greg Nicotero and Mark Shostrom, who did a lot of the work on this, although not the work on the sphere itself. Reggie burns the worm with the flamethrower, and they drive toward the last town before the state line. Perigord. Named after a region of France. Or possibly after one of the Knights Templar, Armand de Perigord. Which, I think, makes this part of the Curse of Oak Island cinematic universe. Sorry, inside joke. Meanwhile, Liz is comforting her grandmother at the funeral of her grandpa, which is presided over by Father Myers and could be one of the single most awkward services committed to film. Not only are the staff hollow-eyed and creepy, possibly these are reanimated but uncrushed corpses, not only are there absolutely no other mourners besides the immediate family, not only does Liz's sister Jerry, played by Stacy Travis, ditch out halfway through to catch a train because she's got stuff to get back to, but 
Father Myers mutilates the corpse as soon as he thinks nobody's looking because he's come to suspect that the tall man is doing something with the bodies and he wants to stop it. Oh, and he gets caught by the dead man's widow. Oof. Mike wakes from a dream about it all, hey, I did say relatively linear, and tells Reggie that they need to hurry because Liz is in danger. She's come face to face with the tall man for the first time, and although he was acting in his role of benevolent undertaker, she accidentally stabs him through the finger with a decorative pin and leaves it behind in her haste to leave. It's clear that he's marked her for special attention the way that he did Mike in the first film, Although, again, the movie doesn't really give her any kind of protagonist status. She's Mike's love interest and the prize that keeps him going forward, nothing more. It's also interesting to note that in this movie, the tall man is a lot more sardonic in these scenes, with a morbid sense of humor and a certain sadistic glee that he didn't have in the previous movie. He's being developed into more of a character in this one, and less of a simple symbol of Mike's fears. At his house that night, Father Myers is drinking heavily. This is another place where you can strongly see the Salem's Lot influence, with a alcoholic priest who knows what's happening to his small town but is powerless to prevent it due to his lack of faith. Uh, when he sees Liz's dead grandfather outside the peephole, mouth sewn shut and face pale, he hides in his room for the rest of the night. With one victim denied to him, or possibly after merely terrorizing the priest on purpose, because we do know the tall man loves his game, the Undertaker sends Grandpa after Liz's grandmother. Incidentally, Grandpa is played by Reuben Kushner and Grandma by Ruth C. Engel. Neither had too many roles beyond this. It's a nice little jump scare, played effectively when Grandma rolls over to check the alarm clock and rolls back to find the other side of the bed occupied. And, despite his wife and child having died just six months ago, despite being on a quest for vengeance against a supernatural monster who bears an apocalyptic danger to the entire human race, despite literally being on his way to confront said monster in a suicide mission that he's been specifically told is highly time-sensitive, Reggie stops to pick up a sexy hitchhiker half his age. Mike does call him out on it during their next bathroom break. They pull over to the side of the road to pee, and there's a lot of unintentional hilarity to the way they keep turning to talk to each other while the urination sound effects keep right on going. It just feels like something that the director should have picked up. But I really feel like Mike's concerns for Alchemy's safety don't really go far enough in addressing the huge problems with this whole dynamic as far as modern audiences are concerned. Sadly, this kind of age gap was common and entirely normalized in this era of film. Even in 1999, 11 years later, a 40-year gap between a male lead and his female love interest wasn't seen as too unusual. I mean, yes, people did have a lot to say about Sean Connery's scenes with Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment when it came out, but the fact that it happened at all speaks volumes. Now, none of this is to say that you can't like this movie. You can like movies that have problematic relationship dynamics. It's possible to engage with issues like this, recognize that they are part of a social structure that unfairly allows men to have very unequal power levels in relation to women in order to privilege their additional lived experience and put them into an authoritarian role over their partners, and that fiction of this kind normalizes those relationships and presents them as egalitarian in a way they very rarely are in the real world, and still enjoy the film for the other things it offers. But I will say that it's important to think critically about your media, because all art is propaganda, and you are not immune to propaganda. 
Back in Paragord, Liz discovers her grandmother's disappearance and finds in the empty room the same decorative pin she left stuck in the tall man's finger. She hears a disembodied voice telling her to go to the mortuary if she wants to see her grandmother again. And, you know, next time, Liz, check the fine print to see whether alive is mentioned. And as night falls and Mike, Reggie, and Alchemy pull into town, finding more boarded up and abandoned storefronts, a sure sign of the tall man's presence, Liz discovers an empty grave where her grandfather's body should be. Or at least where a body should be. According to the headstone, it's the grave of Alex Murphy, so it's entirely possible she mistook her grandfather for Robocop. She sneaks in through the back, and we hear for the first time the strains of the distinctive Goblin-inspired theme from the original music. She spots one of the morticians, played by Mark Anthony Major, processing a corpse by sucking out all its blood and replacing it with a yellow fluid that appears to be the same goo that flows through the tall man's veins. Another servant, a gas-masked figure later called a graver by Mike, is hauling in corpses from the cemetery to be turned into future slaves. Meanwhile, Mike, Reggie, and Alchemy hole up in an abandoned bed and breakfast that used to belong to Alchemy's uncle, setting up booby traps at every entrance to make sure they're not surprised in the middle of the night, and Mike and Reggie leave Alchemy behind in relative safety while they go to the mortuary to investigate. Liz follows the graver through the hallway, only to bump into Father Myers. Despite his fear, he's come to stop the tall man and put an end to the terrors that have gripped his town. But instead, he finds a small, infant-sized coffin in an alcove at the end of the hallway, and shortly afterward, the tall man finds him. The Undertaker telekinetically hangs him by the throat from his own rosary. The cross is suspended upside down, one of the many reasons this movie was condemned by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, before delivering one of the film's most famous lines. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. He releases the priest, but shortly afterwards a hidden panel in the coffin opens up to reveal three metallic spheres that will be very familiar to anyone who saw the first film. Just as Father Myers finds Liz and tells her they have to warn people, one of the floating balls swoops down the hallway and uses a scalpel-like blade to cleanly slice off his ear, then on the return pass pops its signature spikes and sinks into his forehead. It drills into his skull and exsanguinates him like the caretaker from the first movie, albeit with a lot less gore. Coscarelli submitted the full version to the MPAA and was told the film would receive an X rating if it stayed in, despite being virtually identical to the scene from the previous movie that only got an R. The MPAA was really starting to crack down on horror in the late 80s, and Phantasm II is a big victim of it. Once Father Myers is dead, and we could probably go more heavily into the way that the ineffectiveness of the clergy in horror movies is a reflection of the prevailing sentiment of the 70s and 80s that we lived in a world whose moral authorities were fallible and failing at every turn, but I don't think it needs a ton of examination right now given that we plan to discuss the same themes in Salem's Lot where they're more prominent and relevant, a lurker made from Liz's grandma captures her and tries to drag her away but Liz breaks free and smashes her over the head with a vase before making a break for it. She falls into an open grave in the cemetery, but that's when Mike finds her and the two have an instant romantic chemistry due to their shared dream experiences. They head back to the R&B with Reggie to rest and plan their next move. For Reggie and Alchemy, that next move is some of the most comically over-the-top sex ever committed to film. Bannister looks more than a little disconcerted, possibly because his wife was apparently on set for this, 
Well, Phillips treats the whole thing like she's doing a mechanical bull riding scene. I'm not sure if Coscarelli wanted it to be this big and bold and frankly absurd in its exuberance, or if this was an acting choice Phillips made, but it does disarm some of the discomfort in what could otherwise feel very much like a male wish-fulfillment sequence. Whatever it's intended to be, it's interrupted by one of the booby traps going off downstairs, and both of the male protagonists head down to check it out. Again, it's notable that neither woman has asked for, nor been given a weapon. They are strictly there to fulfill their assigned gender roles as love interests for the men. Seeing the results of the booby trap, Mike begins to have second thoughts about their ability to take on the tall man. Given the way he repeatedly gestures at Reggie with his loaded pistol in this scene, I'm beginning to have second thoughts about it, too. This is really something every director should be watching for in their films, because it's always so noticeable when someone uses a gun as a pointer when they're supposed to be knowledgeable about firearms. It worked really well in Werewolves Within, because that character was supposed to be an imbecile who was careless about gun safety, but here, it is the exact opposite effect. Mike suggests getting both women to safety before they continue with their suicide mission. But upstairs, the tall man breaks through a window and captures Liz, because again, damsel in distress. He drives away with her in the back of his hearse, and Reggie and Mike get the cuda and pursue him after telling Alchemy to head south in Liz's car to get herself out of danger. They catch up with the tall man and try to shoot him, which seems like a terrible idea with Liz in the back of the car, but instead he runs them off the road and they flip. Mike barely manages to get Reggie out before the car explodes. Apparently horror host Joe Bob Briggs considers this an unforgivable waste of a classic muscle car. But hey, at least it's a spectacular explosion. You can always count on Don Coscarelli for that. At the mortuary, a semi-conscious Liz is brought by the morticians into the crematorium. One of them scoops out and pulverizes the ashes of the previous occupant, a Mr. Sam Raimi, who saw this with Coscarelli at the premiere and laughed out loud at the unexpected Easter egg, before preparing to dispose of Liz. But she regains consciousness at the last second and rolls free of the conveyor belt. She hits the mortician in the balls and knocks him into the furnace, sealing him in and burning him alive before looking for a way out of the mortuary. Meanwhile, Mike and Reggie find their way into the embalming room and realize that there's a locked door that requires the use of one of the spheres as a key. Reggie takes the opportunity to spike the embalming fluid with hydrochloric acid, just to make it a little harder for the tall man to carry out his operations, and yes, this would in fact be Chekhov's hydrochloric acid, and the two of them then split up to look for Liz. Reggie heads into the basement and finds a graver there, who attacks Reggie with what appears to be superhuman strength. They duel with chainsaws. I have talked about this in Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. This is not a thing you could actually do with chainsaws, because the chains would break, rendering them no longer chainsaws, and also probably causing you injury, because when chains on chainsaw break, they fly unpredictably through the air. Until Reggie gets the upper hand and saws straight through the graver's crotch. Mike, on the other hand, finds Liz just as one of the silver spheres comes after her. They're attacked by the other mortician, who winds up pinned to the door by his hand by the attacking sphere. A second golden sphere shows up, and he hacks his own hand off to escape it. He heads one way while Liz and Mike head the other. They hide in another room, but the golden sphere burns through the door and hunts them with a laser weapon, following them through door after door after door until it finally finds a victim. 
the mortician who caught up to them in the coffin showroom. The sphere extends whirling saw blades and literally burrows into his chest and up through his chest cavity before getting stuck as it tries to emerge from his throat. Elsewhere, Liz's car has broken down. Forced to hitchhike once again, Alchemy finds an abandoned hearse at the side of the road. Hotwiring it, she drives away. Mike goes back for the Silver Sphere, realizing that as long as it's still embedded in the hand of the dead mortician, it's inert. He pries it out of the door as Reggie returns, and the three of them go back to the embalming room to find out what's behind the locked door. To no one's surprise, it's the space gate from the previous movie contained within a very similar Kubrickian white room with plenty of barrels of dwarves stacked for transport. They get ready to burn it all down, but just then the tall man arrives. He throws Mike through the portal and drags Liz back into the embalming room, and Reggie dives into the space gate to rescue his friend. Reggie pulls Mike out just as one of the dwarves emerges from its barrel and comes after him, and they release the sphere from the lock to attack the tall man. It pumps out his yellow fluid, but to no apparent ill effect. He plucks it free and crushes it like a beer can, and lifts Mike off his feet as a strange tentacle emerges from the hole in his skull. One of the things I really like about the tall man is that his weird physiology is never fully explained. It's not like the alien movies where familiarity breeds contempt to some degree and you sooner or later you get used to their life cycle. He's always got something new and unexpected and entirely unnerving to throw at you. But he does appear to be vulnerable to something at least. Liz stabs him in the back with the injector from the embalming device, and Reggie turns it on, pumping him full of hydrochloric acid. He melts in spectacular and gory fashion, how the MPAA got this through, I have no idea, and Reggie proceeds to set the whole room on fire. They flee just as Alchemy pulls up in the hearse, with Mike and Liz climbing into the back and Reggie jumping into the passenger seat, driving away from the mortuary in heroic fashion as it catches fire. But it's not over yet. Alchemy slides shut the divider between front and back, then starts peeling away her flesh as Reggie screams. There was going to be a scene here where she fully transformed into the tall man on camera, but the prosthetics just didn't look right and they scrapped it. The hearse swerves and finally stops, and a terrified Mike and Liz see Reggie stagger out of the hearse covered in blood, desperately trying to break open a window and let them out. He fails, collapsing to the ground as the hearse begins moving again, and we get the other legendary exchange from the film. Mike and Liz try to assure themselves that it's only a dream. And the tall man slides open the divider and says, No, it's not. Hands break through the window and drag both of them away, and the second movie echoes the first in its climax. Unfortunately, the wave of 80s horror was beginning to subside at this time. Freddy and Jason were also losing steam at the box office. And although Phantasm II turned a small profit and became, as with the rest of the franchise, a cult hit on video, it wasn't anything like the kind of guaranteed money Universal was hoping for. They gave up on the series, instead pinning their hopes on a third Evil Dead movie tentatively entitled The Medieval Dead, and left Coscarelli to finance any further installments himself. Which, spoilers for a couple of episodes from now, he did. And will I hang on to this movie? 
I think so. For a while, at least. Again, it's not without its flaws. It is a pay-on to toxic masculinity and machismo, with a lot of tropes that are problematic at best. But it's also a movie that takes surprisingly big swings with its mythos, it's fast-paced, it's got good action, and there's a goofy charm to it that comes from its lo-fi, extremely personal roots as an indie horror film. Universal couldn't get rid of that no matter how hard they tried. And although it is silly at times, it's a lot of fun, too. And if you want to talk about toxic masculinity, studio interference, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, something is buried beneath the Antarctic ice. Something that's been waiting, frozen, for millions of years. Something that can take the form of anything it consumes. That's right, folks. We're getting ready to take on The Thing. The, um, 2011 thing. The prequel to the 1982 John Carpenter classic. That thing. Look, I've never seen it, and I wanted to go in fresh without the Carpenter movie looming over it, okay? Look, look, yes, I know you had your hopes up, but no, no, we're just doing it, alright? 2011's The Thing. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's a great actor, and we're going with it. See you then. She, she just can't please some people, honestly. It's not like we're not going to do the other one. We're just doing this one first. It's a prequel, for Pete's sake. Strictly speaking, we should do it before we do the other one. How do you watch movies, huh? Yeah.